Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Canadians are now moving their evacuation operations to uh, port cities as uh, the conflict continues in Sudan. We're watching it. We have Sudanese Canadians um, worried and concerned about the safety of so many relatives tethered to their phones, trying to contact them, unsure of how long it's going to go on. And as we watch the evacuation, it has been a bit of a stumble of Canada. They had to try to get it together, watching other countries now, I, you know, suspending some of the flights and being what critics say a little bit late to the table. This happened out of the blue. So it's not as if they know this takes time. But for some military analysts, they're connecting it a little bit with Afghanistan, where the feeling is still there. It is haunting those who believe that we deserted those who helped us in Afghanistan. It also draws attention to one of the big stories, political stories and military stories as we talk about our ability to defend ourselves, leaks. It's, it seems to be certainly, unfortunately, trending our national security and military. Christian Luprecht joining us live on the Sunday afternoon, political science professor at Queen's University. Christian, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Arlene. What do you think we're watching as Canadians as we see Sudan? Is there a connection with Afghanistan? Is it a concern how the evacuations took place? Sure. So both of these are what's known as non-combatant evacuations. Uh, and uh, the Afghanistan situation was in some ways a bit easier because it was no, what's known as a semi-permissible environment. So there was a deal with the Taliban and the Taliban stuck to it in terms of providing security. Um, uh, the uh, challenging situation in Sudan is that is what's known as a non-permissible environment. So that is to say uh, there's fighting. Any people you put on the ground are at risk. Anybody who's trying to move through uh, through the countries at serious risk, and as we saw, also planes and any other assets in the uh, in in the country are effectively at risk. So that makes it much more challenging uh, to orchestrate. Now, this is something that Canadian armed forces need to be able to do. It is part of strong, secure, engaged our defense policy. Um, but of course, it is over and above all the other missions that the Canadian Armed Forces have on the go. And so anytime you have this type of a mission, it's a zero sum game because you're pulling assets off other uh, of other missions. And you can see the challenge that Canada had both in actually getting assets to the region. And then we showed up with about 200 soldiers. The Germans showed up with a thousand soldiers and have another 1600 on standby through the end of May uh, to be able to continue the, uh, the evacuation. So again, we're leading on our allies to provide the security, to provide the intelligence. We don't have a foreign human collection service. Uh, so uh, that inherently hampers our ability to move and to move quickly in these sorts of circumstances. All right. As we look at Canada and the reaction to this, first of all, uh, to the conflict we're seeing in uh, Sudan, civil war, now war. I mean, uh, the flames are going up. The pictures are growing in intensity. What do you make of what is actually happening there, Christian? 
Yeah, the so the challenge, of course, is what is transpiring in terms of the war itself and the broader region, right? So if you look at the countries um, in the neighborhood, Central African Republic, Chad, Ethiopia, um, to some extent, so of some of these extremist challenges within uh, within Egypt, Libya, uh, these are all countries that already uh, have have challenges with stability. So um, Sudan risks sort of uh, creating a much broader regional conflagration. At the same time, there's an opportunity here for the government of Canada. So there's a strategic interest for the government of Canada to step in, because if we have broader instability in the region, we saw in 2015 what massive refugee flows do in terms of uh, political stability yes. and so forth among our European allies. So we have a clear strategic interest in contributing to the stabilization. And of course, we have um, civilian capabilities on the ground. Several of the key humanitarian aid organizations World Vision, Oxfam, Plan uh, are all active in Sudan and in the neighboring countries. And I've been disappointed so far that we have not seen a significant announcement from the minister in terms of a humanitarian contribution that we can make and uh, that we're not drawing, for instance, on, uh, on the rapid fund that exists for Canada to respond to natural disasters, but we don't have such a fund to respond to conflict. Um, and it's taking too long for Canada to come to the table and support the civilian assets that can at least mitigate some of the humanitarian catastrophe that is unfolding. It's just blowing back the curtain on other things that we've talked about in national security, our ability to step up a worry that our allies in NATO think that we're behind the leg, as uh, writers say. And Christian, is this just showing up as an example here? Uh, yes, I mean, to, to a large extent, um, we came after other allies. So France, of course, ran its own evacuation. Um, uh, Germany, there was some conflict with the UK, but we do have we do seem to have some decent coordination with other allies in terms of removing our own nationals and other nationals. Uh, but I think it shows how relatively lethargic the whole system in Ottawa is. It takes a long time to get assets together. It takes a long time to make political decisions. And the problem is is the longer you wait to make decisions, the narrower your room for maneuver comes. So the greatest impact you can have if you're able to respond quickly, uh, for instance, the way the Americans were able to move assets in relatively expeditiously um, in order to save the diplomats. But of course, the optics of simply going in and saving your diplomats or only your nationals and not showing up and doing other things that are just as imp strategically important, on the one hand, shows that we don't have a good strategic grasp among key political decision makers in Ottawa of why it's in Canada's interest to act. And we don't have a good grasp of how we need to act in a concerted fashion, not just um, with our allies, but also among our military and civilian agencies in order to respond to these types of catastrophes and to mitigate their impact both uh, nationally and regionally. Are our allies noticing this? Is this noticeable in areas that the average Canadian can't see? We're talking about it, but are others paying attention to this, other countries. Well, sure. I mean, look, Canada was excluded from the most important technology sharing deal in the last 50 years, the AUKUS arrangement between the United States, uh, the United Kingdom and Canada. Um, there was recently a consensus minus one decision at NATO. Uh, Canada has not always been uh, had the opportunity to speak to matters uh, where uh, it it has wanted to speak um, at NATO. Uh, you can see the French ambassador putting the Canadian government on notice about are we going to step up or not. Uh, so uh, there is 
certainly, I think, some misgiving about our allies, about both what we are doing um, and how we are positioning ourselves, not just for the present, but also for a world that is becoming increasingly contested. And if you add to that demographic change, climate change, um, uh, increasingly unstable. And of course, countries such as Sudan are disproportionately hit both on the demographic, um, uh, on, on, on population growth, as well as the compound effects of, okay. uh, of climate change. So it's going to be a lot more heavy lifting to do. And if we're having trouble just doing what we need to do today, we're going to have real trouble tomorrow. Christian, I'm going to switch and just kind of keep Sudan in our minds because it's happening actively, also happening actively is a topic you and I have been discussing and <laughs> the world has been watching, which is the war in Ukraine and Russia. We're starting to see uh, and what was predicted to be more intensity there. And we have a Ukraine vowing and pushing forward to move in and even uh, with its eyes still on Crimea. Christian, as we watch Sudan and we see what's happening in Ukraine right now, another worry has been support again, support of allies. How is that chess game looking today? Yeah, so one of the things where Canada has um, done well when it comes to Ukraine is that uh, if you look at the Kiel Institute that tracks uh, deliveries, that the weapons that Canada has promised, uh, that Canada is actually very good at following through on what it promises and following through on time. Now, uh, I think there's considerable frustration that Canada uh, needs to be doing more. Uh, Part of the challenge is that we don't have, contrary to what people say, uh, this very strong consensus on Ukraine. And so Canada doing more is also a way to keep the uh, coalition that we have together and to uh, be leading in terms of making sure we sustain that effort. Um, and of course, uh, much remains to be seen here about how the spring uh, the spring works out. There's a lot of uncertainty here on both sides. Both sides are very fatigued in this conflict. Um, and uh, we need to uh, make sure that uh, uh, we defend freedom and uh, democracy here. And that's what's ultimately at stake. Are you still worried? Many people are worried as we watch in America and then even here in Canada, far left, far right, wherever it's coming from, the pro-Russian comments. Sure. So uh, absolutely. We need to be very uh, attuned to the active Uh, disinformation campaign that Russia is running in order to undermine and divide the Western effort. Um, And as you point out, specifically on the far left and the far right of the political spectrum, where Russia is very active in trying to mobilize uh, both opinion and action against further support for Ukraine. Uh, These type of active measures date back to Soviet times. It is part of Russian military doctrine. um, And we need to remember that this is all an integrated effort. So the war from Ukraine can't neatly be separated from Russia's ongoing gray zone and uh, asymmetric and hybrid activities to undermine our democracy, our prosperity, um, and our societal harmony and uh, undermining the effort uh, the, and unity when it comes to supporting Ukraine uh, is an important part uh, of what Russia is attempting to do. 
Where does it come from? You know, earlier in the week, I spoke to Chris Alexander, of course, a former diplomat and former cabinet minister in the Harper government. And he was kind of no, tying it in. I mean, we, we, we were, the world was watching Fox News and the firing of Tucker Carlson and wondering if disinformation was that they were getting more reality based. I think that is what the term is. How does all this stuff tie in together where this comes from? It's, you know, not just coming from those who are you know, war watchers. It gets put into the, to the conversation. What are you watching where this, this information and these talking points are coming from? Yes, of course, we've had this, if you want, liberalization, individualization of the media environment, uh, both through the proliferation of uh, various cable channels and, of course, through social media and algorithms that allow us not only to target particular population groups, but also to understand the behavior of those population groups um, in order to target them. And, of course, that's one of the concerns with regards to TikTok, uh, the ability of an authoritarian hostile government to gather behavioral patterns on Western populations uh, and then and then effectively weaponize that data um, against our democracy and against uh, against our populations so um, and uh, the only way we can really combat this effectively is by building resilient societies where people become more astute about the sort of information that they're viewing and being able to question themselves um, on that information the challenge I think that we have generally in North America but uh, also in particular in Canada that our levels of political education um, are relatively low compared to Europe. And uh, so that obviously makes it easier to drive wedges uh, and to plow, apply people uh, with information that uh, is, uh, is, is far from accurate, uh, but that gets uptake based on people's uh, behavioral and attitudinal uh, patterns towards the world. How do we do it, though? I mean, we're watching it. We've got all sorts of of awareness about dismantling this misinformation. And then those who put out the misinformation accuse the others of having misinformation. It's, it's quite sophisticated, though. We've seen that used in our history before. Yeah, I think one of the challenges for me is that uh, we've become very entrenched in the way we convey information. It's no longer about engaging in debates and reflection. It's it's about uh, doctrinal sort of acceptance that these are my views and these views are correct and I'm not going to change them and you're just going to need to accept my views. And I think in a democracy, uh, we ultimately thrive on debate and we thrive on argument and we thrive on a free market of ideas where ultimately the better ideas are supposed to win. But the same way that authoritarian hostile actors uh, are trying to manipulate our elections, the same way they're trying to manipulate our information on uh, the free market in the information environment so that certain ideas that would otherwise be at the margins uh, become uh, become much more amplified. And so I think the, the, the old adage that democracy is not to be taken for granted, democracy needs to be defended, uh, means that we don't just need to physically defend it in Ukraine, we also need to make sure we defend uh, our institutions institutions and our information space uh, against people who leverage our freedoms for nefarious purposes. We've been hearing some incredible comments these days, um, and it's been happening for a few weeks, ever since the CSIS leaks growing, even this week. Are we in a crisis? Are we in a moment that is uh, the most dangerous since the Second World War? People like yourself are coming to some conclusions here. How would you put it? 
Well, look, ultimately, we live in a democracy, right? And so it's ultimately up to the government of today, of the day to decide whether it's going to act and how it's going to act. Uh, the challenge is that in all democratic governance, perhaps with the United States a little bit exempt, uh, politicians aren't particularly interested in foreign policy, defense policy, security policy, um, in part because uh, those are elements that don't really get them votes. And so um, I think what we're learning here is that um, although this might not be particularly popular a topic with politicians uh, and not a particular popular topic in order in legislation and on spending. It is a topic that is increasingly vital to uh, Canada's interests, uh, both domestically and internationally. Um, and so simply pretending, uh, as we have for the better part of a couple of decades, that these are other people's problems or that these problems will just simply go away um, is, uh, a, uh, is a dangerous strategy, both for our own democracy and for democracy um, more uh, broadly in the world, which is, of course, under considerable duress, but it's also dangerous for our national interest and our ability to assert our national interest. Because if our allies don't take us seriously, we don't have the ability to um, uh, to work with them uh, to leverage them to assert our interests elsewhere. So uh, it's it's um, I, I think we're we're seeing in Ottawa that uh, that politicians are struggling with the issues before them, and that's I think why there's also trepidation to make decisions because people are either afraid to make decisions or they feel that whatever decision they're going to make is going to be simply too controversial. Um, uh, and what we're missing is ultimately leadership where we want this country to be 10, 20 years from now and how we want this country to shape, uh, contribute to shaping the 21st century and the environment that we live in. You know, Christian, it is really dizzying how many reports have been put before us. I don't know how many I've covered, certainly in the last year and a half, about what kind of a situation we're in. Has the certainly we know the war in Ukraine has really pulled this up. How much so, though, Christian? And as we see it go on and on, how is that the importance of this and what happens in that war changed? Well, I think it's a reminder that ultimately the security environment is quite unpredictable um, and that it was clear that Russia was going to move. But I think uh, people pretended they didn't want to hear it, just like they didn't want to hear that Afghanistan was going to fall to the Taliban. We put in 20 years and lots of blood and treasure. So, of course, the government in Kabul is going to hold in the same way people didn't want to believe uh, that Vladimir Putin was out for blood and was effectively prepared to use uh, force to redraw uh, the borders of Europe for the first time in uh, in over seven decades. Um, and I think uh, it shows that we need to be prepared for these eventualities and not being prepared is ultimately going to come at a much higher cost uh, financially in terms of lives and in terms of our own prosperity and democracy than doing the right things now, playing a couple steps ahead and making sure that we are resiliently and effectively postured. Uh, and uh, I think the we, we, uh, we probably need a very different approach to these topics because we treat them just like any other political football that we kick around among opposition parties. Whereas on this particular topic, we need a multi-partisan consensus uh, on how we're going to go about our defense uh, and security policy. Uh, other countries have done this, Australia, France, Denmark, uh, and it is high time for Canada if it wants to regain the trust of its allies to do likewise. All right. Finally, uh, before we let you go, I just want to, uh, to stick with that for a moment. I mean, how, how out of step are we? What other countries are doing this? 
So, look, anytime we invest in uh, security and intelligence, those are controversial topics when it comes to civil rights. Um, and we want to make sure we protect uh, people's civil rights, but we also need to understand we can't protect them uh, at the cost of then other countries undermining the very institutions with which we protect and assure people's civil rights. Um, and when it comes to investing in defense, um, uh, defense issues, we need to understand that these are long-term investments, and these are effectively uh, an insurance policy. And so it's ultimately up to the electorate to decide what premium we're prepared to pay. But I think the last year have show, has shown um, that the premium that we've been paying uh, is simply inadequate for the environment in which we live. And yes, ultimately, investing in defense is money we're not putting into productivity, we're not putting into social citizenship and uh, welfare-type, uh, welfare-state-type programs. Um, but uh, ultimately, um, that premium ensures and safeguards the prosperity uh, and the welfare programs that we ultimately cherish uh, by ensuring that we continue to maintain a sense of stability in this world. Um, and uh, the investments that are required to maintain stability are significantly higher today, um, uh, both as a result of the challenges that we see from authoritarian regimes and as a result of naturogenic effects um, uh, such as climate change. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.